All right, everybody, welcome to Live from My Drum Room. It's a pleasure to see you all here today. And I'm very, very happy to welcome my guest today, a very dear friend for many years, a master drummer, the great John Riley, is here with me today. And there he is. Hey, John. Hey, John. Great to see you, man. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. It's been a while since we've actually spoken uh, almost in person. I know, I know, I know. You know, I, I say this a lot when I have my guests on the show, and I say, you know, this today, it, it's about you, it's not about me, but it's actually been, um, next month, February, is 10 years since I left my my old post where you and I first met in the late 1980s. So it's it's, we probably, I'm thinking, might have seen each other a few times or a couple of times in between, but maybe not, I don't know, but anyway. It hasn't been often, unfortunately. I know, yeah, absolutely. But it's it's great to have you here today. And and uh, man, I want to first of all say congratulations on your new book. It's getting rave reviews. I've seen, yeah, all the cats talking about it, and uh, we'll definitely get into that in a little bit. But let's let's talk a little bit about just you know your history and and uh, you know you as a player, as a teacher, as an educator. Um, we were talking offline about the your gig with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra that goes back over 30 years. Yeah, um, I've been there actually longer than Mel Lewis. I'm a little embarrassed to say that. But wow. um, you know, that band started in 1965, and uh, we're still going every Monday since then. Little break for the pandemic, but... Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a fantastic run. Um, what what an amazing run! Yeah, I mean, I I wondered about that, but that of course makes sense that Mel and and you came in right after Mel passed, right? I mean, it was it was well, I I was actually on the road a lot at that time with John Schofield, and um, the band decided they didn't need uh, or wasn't wise to have a drummer that wasn't going to be there very much in this transition period. So first, Dennis McCrell did it, uh, very good drummer. And he was there probably about a year or maybe a little less. And then Danny Gottlieb did it for maybe oh, right. half a year or something like that. And then at that point, I was no longer with Schofield, and uh, they asked me to join. And I've been there since uh, 92 or 91 or something. Wow. Yeah. What a, what a, what a congratulations on that. What an incredible run and, and glad you guys are back at it. I, I think a few of us came to, I think I've seen you, um, with the band and it would have been in sometime in the nineties. I was telling my wife this morning and it's so weird that I, I have this fog about it, but I, f- I feel like after one of the modern drummer festivals that would, you know, myself and Lenny DiMuzio and Colin Schofield would hang in New York for a few days afterward. And I'm, I kind of remember coming to, to the, only one time coming to the club and seeing you small club, everybody's packed in there tight. And, um, yeah, I, I believe that, uh, I recall that. Yeah. You know, the club is even older than the band. The club <laughs> been there since 1935. Wow. And, um, not much has changed in there and it, it's, it's in a basement I think it seats about 150 people packed in. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's, it's a kind of a fluke that that particular room happens to be a music room because almost any, everybody that plays there feels an intimacy and something special about the acoustics and the, the way the sound travels around in that room. Um, when the owner, Max Gordon, he had another venue that was more of like a cabaret and camp comedy room. And he wanted to expand and this basement was cheap to rent. And so it wasn't designed for music or anything like that, but it's just uh, uh, kind of a, well, definitely an, his, an historic place. Yeah. And there's a feeling when you walk down the stairs, you climb down the stairs and Miles played there and Coltrane and Bill Evans and Sonny Rollins. And uh, just to be, you know, in that air um, is yeah. pretty special. It must be, it must, it, and I'm guessing it never, it, that never fades, right? When you, when you arrive on a Monday to do that gig, you, there's like, there's like a vibe in there that you feel, I'm, I'm sure. There's a vibe because of all that history and because of the eagerness to play that music that I love, but also mm -hmm. because the place is packed with people that want to hear it and uh, want to enjoy it. So that, yeah. you know, the, that combination of things uh, makes it special. And you would think after doing the same gig for 30 years that it might get boring, but we have about 300 arrangements in the book and there's so much variety there. And there's such a range of soloists that is challenging to find the, the right way to accompany each guy. So that is another element that that's been evolving through the years. Yeah, yeah. I, and you you answered a question I was going to ask you, and I, I I figured that the book was big enough that you could, you know, you could every you, obviously every performance wouldn't be the same, and you'd be able to to vary it. But I didn't realize you had that you know three hundred songs to choose from. So yeah, I would say yeah. the foundation of the book is the music of Thad Jones. And then there were other writers that he encouraged to contribute to the book. And first Bob Brookmeyer and um, then Jim McNeely and Bob Mincer and uh, Micah Benny, a lot of great um, Bill Holman, a lot of great composers have, have contributed to the book. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a state now where I almost never open the book and um, feeling like liberated with this music that um, that and I love playing and I feel like I'm because I'm for a while when I looked at the music it made me feel like I was approaching it in a very similar way every time and so I decided to trust that I know what this music is and I put the the parts the sheet music away and now I feel like um, I'm accompanying 16 Sonny Rollinses all at once rather than wow. um, I'm reading a chart and playing one, two, three, Betty, ah, you know that. Yeah, and yeah. Because every time I saw that accent, I would play the same thing, Betty, ah. But now it feels like uh, just much freer. That's great, man. That's incredible. Yeah. And and it, I have to think that gives you this completely 
more you know new fresh approach to playing all those arrangements just in a in a different mindset now because as you say you're just you're not you're not restricted to feeling like you have to just you know abide by the book you're just you're just feeling it more now well i think that my eye when i was relating to what i was seeing it made me approach it in a similar way and you know everybody else's parts are more or less fixed except yeah, for the soloists yeah. but i don't really want this band that's been going on for so long to to sound like a nostalgic band or uh or you know just tired so i'm the one with the most responsibility to kind of uh invigorate things so in a way i have more liberty than anyone else but i also have more responsibility because of that but i i appreciate that um that they trust me uh, yeah, so, yeah. so we can take some chances that's great by the way our friend adam nussbaum is watching and is he's commenting with to the things that you're saying and he just said yay ears win <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, yeah. a, it's definitely for me, it's a combination. But first it was eyes. Uh, well, first it was ears hearing music and being excited by music in general. And then um, you asked me about my history and taking lessons from the time I was like eight years old with a teacher that insisted that I know how to read and that I knew the rudiments. And yeah. at the same time, he was also um, teaching me how to play a gig like how to play a bossa nova and how to play a polka and how to play a rumba and um, how to play two beat and a waltz. And so that I still use those things, yeah, um, yeah. you know, all these years later. Isn't that something? I know. I know. And I, and I don't know about you, but I, I'm guessing when you're eight years old, you probably thought to yourself, when am I ever going to use any of this stuff? You know, I, I want to play Spangalanga, Spangalanga, you know, but but here you are using it. Well, a few actually, years later. I, actually, I wanted to play like Ringo and Dino Donnelly and Mitchell. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, at, at that time, it, it but it, you know, it turned out okay, John. I think it turned out okay, going well, in a different I, direction. Thanks. I I started to hear this jazz music and. Um, it just felt to me like drummers had a little more liberty and a little more impact on the flow of the music um, because it wasn't so quite so repetitive. And um, the first jazz records I heard were the soundtrack to the Gene Krupa story and, yeah. and a Max Roach record. Uh, and um, the Max Roach record, I didn't understand at all. But the Gene Krupa record, I could kind of hang with. Yeah. And I, I would play with that record every day uh, in the basement in New Jersey when I was, you know, working on rock beats and, and my rudiments and all that stuff, too. I still was playing along with this Gene Krupa record. And I remember there was one tune in there. I think it was Back Home in Indiana, which was a fast swing tune. And I couldn't make it to the end of the tune. <laughs> I just kept hitting it and hitting it and hitting it until I had the endurance to make it to the end of that song. Wow. Yeah. That, how, how old were you at that point? 
I got that record from a fifth grade teacher that I had. Um, so I don't know. I was 11. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. You know, and it, it, I find a lot of, um, it's interesting you mentioned Gene Krupa too. I think maybe more so than a lot of, you know, great, you know, founding father jazz drummers. Gene seems to be the one that a lot of rock drummers kind of gravitated toward. Probably because, as you said, Max was over a lot a lot of people's heads, and and uh, I mean he certainly was for me when I first heard him, and and Buddy was kind of over my head, and and just from the standpoint of just his technical prowess, you know. But Gene had this uh, um, every man kind of approach to it, just like you knew. I mean, he was playing some some great shit. I mean, it wasn't simple stuff, but it was. I think it it made, uh, you know, kind of it was a more sort of popular uh, style. I think for for drummers to kind of gravitate toward. Oh, I agree. And and yeah. when I actually, I think maybe I heard Carmine Apice before I heard Gene. And when I heard Gene, I thought, "Wow, he stole all of Carmine's stuff." <laughs> <laughs> Because of the way he played on the Tom Toms, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there was definitely this connection, yeah, in rock and roll and, and to Gene. He also played motivically. He maybe he played simpler ideas and he hung with them longer than Max or Buddy, and so yeah. that made them more uh, understandable for for us kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Incidentally, I think Carmine would tell you that Gene stole all his licks, probably. <laughs> if we were to ask Carmine, he, he'd he's, go, yeah. He's written a book about it. <laughs> Realistic Gene. <laughs> Realistic Gene, right. Exactly. Oh, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a quick uh, question at you real quick. And by the way, our friend Mike Vosbean is watching also oh, wow. and, uh, and says, great book. And we're talking about the master drummer John's latest book, which we're going to get into in a minute. But um, Anthony Christina uh, has a quick question for you here. He said, um, please ask John if he would share with us what Joe Morello showed him about solving his own problems so he could become his own teacher. It's an interesting question. And I, I hopefully you understand it better than I do, John. Well, I do understand it. Okay. Uh, Joe said that... Um... Well, he had a lot of specific things that we worked on, but basically the idea was that these were things that, that he discovered helped him play better. And he said that by showing me how he solved his problems, he was hoping that he was teaching me how to solve my problems. I see. So that, okay. was, that was the essence of it. Uh, I see. Okay. It, it yeah. sounds more complicated than it is. <laughs> well, I should I should know. Anthony always asks great questions, so I I should have known um, that it wouldn't throw you by any means, that it, and that it would be a good question. So, well, I should yeah. I should follow that up and say that Joe was a very um, particular kind of teacher, and he gave very small assignments, but expected uh, significant dedication to to working on those assignments and he was really generous um and uh i'm i'm very grateful that that uh, i had that time with him 
And the reason I, the way I found out about him was Danny Gottlieb told me about him. Um, I had gone to this Ludwig Drum Symposium, I think in 1971 at the University of Miami and uh, in Florida. And Roy Haynes was there, Carmine was there, uh, Gary Burton, Joe Morello, all these world-class players that I had, hadn't been around at all. Um, and so I attended all these classes, and, but it was a little bit too much for me. On the plane ride home, there's these two kids sitting behind me with drumsticks out, and they're wailing on the back of my seat like ferociously fast. <laughs> and so I turned around and I saw, I kind of recognized them from the symposium. And uh, one of them was Danny. Wow. And we were flying back from Miami to New Jersey. And so we talked a little bit about the symposium. And he said, well, who do you study with? And I said, I study with this guy named Tom Sicola. And he said, well, you should call Joe Morello up for an evaluation lesson. So I called Joe up and he was charging $20 an hour at that time. And I went to this music store called Dorn and Kirshner in Union, New Jersey. And I think Dorn was Billy Dorn, who was a famous mallet player and a mm-hmm. designer of some mallets. Uh, and I went there and Joe evaluated me and kind of spanked me, but um, was very inviting and encouraging. So then I started going and taking regular lessons. In fact, I would go and hang out. He had a practice room, a, a little waiting room next to his teaching studio. And I would hang out there with the other students. So I would I would go there like three or four days a week and practice with the guys that had been with him for much longer. And I guess he thought I was making good progress because he was really encouraging. And if he had 10 minutes break between students, he'd invite me and he said, Hey, Riley, come in for a checkup. And so uh, I would see him a couple of times a week in addition to my regular lesson. So it was, it was a fantastic experience. Wow, man. What I, I didn't know that. What a great experience. Yeah. And when I think back to it, like he was in his early forties then. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. And the, and the early seventies and, he was and you were just prime. Yeah. And you were a teenager, right? I mean, you were, yeah, I was, a te- I was in high school. Yeah. Yeah, man. And, and I could totally see Danny, you know, uh, saying to you, you know, he's such a warm, loving human saying, Hey, you should study, you know, you should go to see Joe Morello for an evaluation. I love it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Dan, that's that's Danny for you. Well, there's another uh, question I'm just going to run by you real quick, John, from Michael DeLuca, um, and, and he's saying uh, relax. He's asking about a ra- uh, relaxation technique for up tempo swing. Mm, well, um, since I studied with Joe Morello, um, my awareness of using rebound really increased. And that was that was the prime thing that he was talking about was not not working any harder than you had to, but figuring out how to manipulate the rebound of the stick so that you had clarity and endurance um, 
but you use the muscles as little as possible. Of course, there are muscles involved, but but you want to be as efficient as possible. And so uh, the technique that I use, I think there's a, vi- a video on the, Jil- on the Zildjian website where I describe this. Um, basically, we ha- if we're playing the swing pattern, there's, there's six notes. One, two, uh, three, four, five, six. All right? One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. And you can, you can achieve that with a wrist stroke for each note. Or you can kind of throw the stick on beat two and four and let it dribble off the cymbal and bounce. That would be less uh, articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm using a kind of a combination of I'm throwing the stick on two and four and then using fingers to collect it. Um, I don't know if I can demonstrate it here. I've got this practice pad that uh, that I got oh, yeah. years and years and years ago from Billy Cobham's ex-wife. And so this this Gladstone pad must have a billion Cobham notes played into it. I'll bet. Yeah. So I'm kind of, I don't know if this is going to work, but. Or maybe this way is better. So I'm letting the stick rebound. And when it rebounds, it, it forces my fingers open. I see. I'm not, I'm not throwing my fingers out, but the stick is rebounding, kind of pivoting around my index and middle finger and then collecting it with the fingers. Um, And I kind of try and think of the sound of like a galloping horse. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have that, that clarity. Um, It's a little difficult to, to uh, communicate this uh, long distance like this, but I hope that's helpful. And maybe check, yeah, check that video out that uh, a, a little thing I did at PASIC some years ago that John King recorded, and it's on the on the Zildjian or on YouTube. Okay, yeah, yep. If I can, I'll, I'll look for that and and uh, and attach the link uh, to this when we when we put it up later. Yeah. Great. Well, and I, I just want to um, we'll get into the book a little bit here, John, while we're talking about some of these methods and techniques. And the book, as we said, as I said, is The Master Drummer. And I know that um, within the book, you talk about the four areas, uh, all the greats excel in four areas, technique, groove, creativity, and musicianship. Um, and maybe you could just take a moment and and sort of talk about those different areas and how you, how each one you feel, you know, fits into that, that sort of category. Hmm. Well, I would say of the four, the two most important are groove and musicianship. And it, in order to groove, you need to have some technique. You yeah. need to have some coordination or things won't be synchronized in a, in a sort of metronomic way that um, that's repeatable. So, so technique enhances groove. Um, musicianship is 
what do you do with the technique that you have? And how do you use that to support the other musicians, to complement the music that's happening around you? Um, and then musicianship is, uh, well, it's do you understand songs? Can you play things that complement the people that you're, that you're playing with? Um, in a way, you know, technique, getting better and better technique can be helpful if you have, as Adam Nussbaum would say, if you have good ears. Mm -hmm. um, but te te technique is, uh, as Joe Morello used to say, technique is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And so this combination of, of elements, um, having control of the instrument, playing in a way that's sympathetic to the music you're involved in, um, complementing the musicians that you're playing with. I think in the most basic terms, our job is to unify and inspire the band. And with a level of control, um, with a metronomic sense, with the ears to hear the form of the music, with the ears to hear the energy or emotional direction of the other players, uh, you can support you can support in a way that um, that will get them to invite you back for the second night. <laughs> <laughs> which is very important, which is, yeah, no, I think that's, that's what a great answer. And I think, and if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly what you're saying, I think, um, I, I, I know I won't say that I'm, I'm guilty of it, but I think it's easy for people to, um, confuse technique with chops and think that, um, you know, that it's, I think what you said at the very beginning is so important, John, about how you need good technique to groove. But that, but I think sometimes people, uh, I know when I was younger, I, I equated technique to just like incredible rudiments and speed and, and chops. But, but I don't think that's what you're saying. You're saying technique, you're saying playing clean and playing smooth and, and developing your playing is your technique. And those are all the tools that you need to, to groove and to play well with other musicians. Oh, I agree with that. And, <clears throat> and aligned with this in a way, so I said there's four components. In a way, the easiest one to develop is technique because mm -hmm. you can develop that by yourself whether you've ever listened to any music or not. You can, you can get faster on your paradiddles with a metronome. Right. But that doesn't mean that you're going to play them in a place that's musically appropriate. So we need some context for things. That's why, that's why we listen to Max Roach and listen to Steve Gadd and listen to um, Elvin and Buddy and Tony to figure out what kind of choices did they make? And can we... Can we learn from those choices? Can we steal ideas from them and then personalize them? Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of where creativity comes in. 
Um, yeah. But but cultivating your ears, developing a sense of how to communicate with other musicians, those are separate um, endeavors from getting faster paradiddles. Uh, right. And yep. having even faster paradiddles doesn't compensate for having no ears. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, it's... Great, great information. This is well, thanks. Yeah, this is fantastic. And I think I think we should charge everybody watching whatever you charge for a lesson. <laughs> uh, I'm just happy to be here with you and with Adam and and Michael and uh, everybody else. Wow, thank you. And likewise, so happy to have you here. And um, I want to just ask you a couple more things about the book. Um, I remember when you did the Art of Bop Drumming. Uh, back in the mid '90s, I remember when that came out, and that was an uh, an instant classic, um, and beyond bop. And what what would you say this book has that those two books don't cover? What are some of the things that? Well, it has more. Um, well, there was a vi there's a video involved, and so there's video examples connected to every uh, aspect of every element discussed in the book. And so there's more playing actually and physical play. You can see me playing and describing what I'm thinking about. So I think that the, the application of all the stuff that's in the other book is perhaps more vividly presented uh, with the, the supplemental material of the video. Great. Okay. Yep. Great. Okay. And, and I should mention too, that this is, the book is available. I don't know if I said this, but Hudson Music, of course, um, has this book. Has, it's released under Hudson and, uh, and Rob Wallace, not surprisingly, you know, you have all this great other content uh, available with it. As you say, supplemental information, that's, that's a huge plus. So um, is, do you see uh, the master drummer in terms of the three books we talked about the master drummer art of bop and beyond bop is there like a an order that you would that someone would go through like one book to the next to the next uh, uh, they... well I, I guess the art of bop drumming would be the first one it would okay yeah. but but actually in the master drummer because it was a dvd i spoke about this sort of morello hand technique which is helpful in the beginning as well, which I couldn't really cover in a text um, in the 90s. So there's, there's some overlap, but definitely the art of bop drumming before beyond bop drumming. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and are you, still, you're, are you still teaching privately, John? Do you still have time to take private students? I have some private students. I had one scheduled for after us today who called me and uh, he said that he was in traffic court because he had too many parking tickets and he didn't <laughs> think it was going to take this long, but he had to cancel the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor guy. Oh, no. That's not a good sign. Uh, well, I, I thought you were going to – yeah, I thought you were going to say he, he said, uh, I'm going to watch the live show live from my drum room and, and get a free lesson today and not have to pay for it. <laughs> well, he might be doing that too, but um, <laughs> when he told me how many parking tickets I, he had, I was, uh, I don't know if I was sympathetic. I, it wasn't sympathy oh, I was man. feeling. 
It's like, what, you idiot? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I got to think nowadays, that's, you can't mess with that stuff, you know? I mean, with, with everything, you know, it's going to catch up with you sooner or later. So I, I yeah. Yeah. I hope, yeah, I hope, he, I hope it works out for him. Uh, and, and just to, to follow up on that question, I, I'm just curious, is there a, I'm guessing there's a certain skill level that a, a drummer has to be at before you'll accept them as a student. And I, I just wonder like what, where that threshold is for you. Um, you know, one of the best students I ever had was a six year old kid who I don't remember exactly, but his mother was European and he, as a six year old, I think he spoke Hungarian Hebrew, English, and maybe Chinese or something. And he was taking Suzuki violin lessons and wanted to take drum lessons. And so he came to the lessons and his mother would sit in every lesson, just like Suzuki violin. And so she basically, I wouldn't say she learned everything, but she understood what the assignments were. And this kid came back every week and had mastered everything. Oh, my God. But after six months, his mother called me and said, you know, he's decided he wants to take karate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And now he's probably a black belt. He could be. He could be. Third degree. Yeah. Uh, Most of my teaching is is, uh, at the Manhattan School of Music or at this university in Pennsylvania called Kutztown. So most of my students have, uh, have had a lot of experience already. Um, but if someone is eager, I'm not, uh, I'm happy to try and help. Yeah. Okay. And I, and I was going to mention Manhattan school and I, and you, and you've had a long association with them. I know. Yeah. 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 I've been lucky to have, uh, so many students that inspire me. And, uh, just trying to stay one week ahead of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't, I'm sure that's not a problem. Oh man. Well, there's a couple of questions that came in through Facebook too, that I just want to um, get to before I run out of time here. And this is from Charles Prim. Um, very basic question on comping here for Mr. Riley. Uh, what is the real secret for learning to play the left hand and right hand foot independent of the steady patterns of the right hand and left foot. So I, I guess it's an independence question. So what is the real secret for learning to play the left hand and right foot independent of the right hand and left foot? I've been playing for a long time, still have lousy comping skills. Uh, thank you for the great books. Thank you. Well, I think one of the things that we have to develop is the ability to put one or two of our limbs kind of on autopilot. And so the ride cymbal and hi-hat, you want to have the, the, uh, I don't know, muscular conditioning and brain conditioning to have, to, to get those two things to go on their own and have that require only a small percentage of your brain power. Mm-hmm. So then your brain power is available to, let's say, at first synchronize what the left hand might play or 
to introduce what the left hand might play and and have it introduce an idea without the ride symbol or hi-hat pattern distorting. And so I would suggest starting with the simplest thing, which is playing quarter notes on the snare drum while you're playing the cymbal pattern. So bop, 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 and then can you play all the upbeats with the left hand while you play the cymbal and the hi-hat pattern? And then make a pattern where you play different combinations. Say, I'm going to play two notes. Bid it, did it. So you have bid it, bid it, bid it, bid it. And then move it over. Bid it, bid it, did it, did it, bid it, did it, did it, etc. And then do the same thing with the bass drum. And then try and distribute the quarter notes between the snare drum and bass drum. Bap, boom, beep, boom, beep, boom, eh, uh. And then on the upbeat, boom, bap, boom, bap, boom, bap, boom, bap. And then when you have those two notes, little cells, try and vary them between the snare drum and bass drum. So you've got the steadiness of the cymbal and the hi-hat, and then the clarity of what you're going for with the snare drum and the bass drum. Make sure you have a clear idea of, of what, that, what that figure looks like. And so <laughs> when I'm learning a new song, and let's pretend I don't have any sheet music, but there are important elements in that song. Like there's a stop at a certain point and there's an accent at another point. When I'm, when I'm playing that song, I'm trying to get it to imprint on me in four different ways. Like what is this, this song that I, what does it sound like that, that stop on beat one? What does it feel like? physically to stop on beat one what does it do emotionally to the music to stop on beat one and what does it feel like physically to make that thing happen there so it's the same kind of thing when i'm i'm comping or learning how to comp what does that figure one end what does that look like what does it sound like what does it feel like emotionally and what does it feel like physically to play? So I have this four different frames of reference that help me um, achieve what I'm going for with clarity and with, with consistency. Th- does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. And, 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 I'm, and just to, to jump back a, a second um, when you're when you're playing those individual parts, you're playing quarter notes with the hi hat, with your left foot on the hi hat. You're playing. If I'm playing you, swing, I'm probably playing two and four with the hi hat. With the hi hat, yeah. Yeah, but if I was playing eighth notes on the ride cymbal, I could play two and four on the hi hat, or I could play all four quarter notes on the hi hat, kind yeah. of like Tony did. 
Yeah, yeah. And and when you when you're doing those four different things, when when you're in the moment, when John Riley, when you're sitting there, if it's if it's a gig and you're and you have music in front of you, you're you're not thinking about those things though, right? I mean, those things are just kind of happening in your in your mind. Right. It you just it just it just happens for you. It's yeah. um I'm perceiving what's the events in those four different ways simultaneously. Yeah. But that helps me the second chorus of the song know what's going to happen. Right. That that's that's my objective is to to not sound like I'm sight reading or guessing what's going to happen on the first or second playthrough. My my goal I don't know if I ever achieve it, but my goal is to sound like I wrote the song. That's the way I want to sound, right? Yeah. And so if you're comping, you want your comping to have that same kind of clarity, like you exactly know what you're doing and you intend to play those, that snare drum note there and that bass drum note there. And there is in relation to the ride cymbal. Right on. Okay. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, people should, should uh, aspire to achieve that ability to develop that, that ability to do that. Oh yeah. yeah I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, and I, I think that's maybe what Charles uh, Prim is getting at is that, you know, you, you need to be able to be able to, you know, develop that ability so that you can do what you just said and you can in the moment be, you know, owning that, those comping parts. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You need to, you need to hear what you're playing and where it lays in inside the time. And um, it gets back to, to how much can you put on autopilot? I mean, when I, I remember when I first started to learn how to play a rock beat, I was, had to synchronize every eighth note, like, one and two and three and four and one and two and three and like which which bass drum notes fall with which right hand notes where does the Mm -hmm. backbeat fall with the hi-hat and then after a while i could do that without thinking as much Mm -hmm. and then i could start to hear what the other musicians were playing and why the drummer was playing the particular thing he was playing. And so in jazz, this, you can't really be thinking about the placement of each one of those things. It has to go, and then you can do, you know, as I said, you could play. And I can have a conversation t- with you while I'm doing it. Hey, John, are you still in in my in Massachusetts, or are you kind of look with that T-shirt like you're in Florida? <laughs> I'm still in Massachusetts. Okay. <laughs> well, you must have a good heating system in your house. I've, it's pretty warm down here, so I'm I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's fantastic, John. Thank you for that demonstration and that great answer. Um, I hope it helps, Charles. 
Ab- absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that's great. And and uh, a couple of people asked this question. I'm going to ask this question that uh, my old friend Kip Williams asked, which is um, the Frank Zappa connection, and I, I guess an audition for Frank Zappa, which I didn't know about. Um, this is a long maybe. story. I'm not sure. If, <laughs> um, I think it was in 1980. On a Friday, I got a phone call and the, picked up the phone and said, hi, my name's Frank Zappa. Somebody told me you could play my music. Is it true? And I thought, oh, who's putting me on? It's Adam Nussbaum. Yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out it was Frank Zappa. <clears throat> and um, somebody told him they thought I could play his, his music. So I said, I love your music. Uh, he said, well... I want you to come out and audition for the band. He said, and there's a plane ticket at JFK airport with your name on it for Sunday. And when you land, so-and-so will take you to this hotel and Monday morning, so-and-so will pick you up and bring, at nine 30 and bring you to Joe's garage. And so that's what happened. I got there wow. and um, the band was already set up. It was Ike Willis and Ray White Tommy Mars, uh, Arthur Barrow was the bass player. And um, there was a giant drum set there with two drums, two bass drums and about six tom-toms and some synairs or some kind of electronic drums from, from mm-hmm. that era. <clears throat> and Frank said, um, okay, let's play. He said, play a reggae groove. And I looked at the drums, and there was no drum seat there and no hi-hat cymbals. <laughs> What's going on? So <laughs> I, I said, I'd love to play a, a reggae group, but there's no drum seat and no hi-hat cymbals. And Frank, Frank went like this. Pretend we're on the road, and half the gear got lost. Play a reggae groove. I mean, it was just <laughs> like that. So I I fumbled around playing on the rims and some other stuff. And at this time, there, the, Joe's Garage was like a big soundstage with lights and, and uh, a beautiful rehearsal room. Um, and so there were roadies there, I guess. And so they're scurrying around looking for a drum seat and hi-hat cymbals, and then they, they find them quickly. So then he has me play a couple of other things, some... At one point, he said, can you play compound time? And I said, compound time? What do you mean by that? And he said, you know, 2 plus 3 plus 2 plus 2 plus 3 plus 3 plus 2 plus 3. And uh, I, gra- I had a pencil, and I started writing these numbers down on the head of the floor, Tom. And so we played this thing, <laughs> which ended up being uh, a song called Keep It Greasy. Oh, yeah. Um and Vinnie Colyuda. Yeah, Vinnie Colyuda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I played a couple more things, and then he said, can you read? And so he gave me something to read. I remember it was in 6-8, in and the groove was completely written out, and the fills were completely written out. So it was like... And then there was one called Pedro's Dowry, which kind of looks like the black page. And then 
the ultimate one was the hardest thing I've ever seen in my life was a piece called Mo and Herb's Vacation, yeah. which was written for Vinny and this big drum set that was that was there. And I remember it said quarter note equals 60. And the first measure had something like, uh, I don't remember exactly, like a half note triplet. And on the middle note of the half note triplet was a quintuplet with a couple of rests in it. <laughs> and it was orchestrated for this drum set. And so Frank is standing in front of me and he goes, one, two, three, four. <laughs> And it turns out the piece was, at this point, unison bass and drums. And Arthur Barrow, the bass player, knew it. So we played, I don't know, I played about eight bars of it, which would be like, I don't know, 20 seconds or something. And it wasn't, wasn't perfect. But Frank said to me, um, he said, I can tell you can see this. How long will it take you to be able to play it? And it, it's uh, six or eight pages long of that kind of stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> Orchestrated for double bass drum, this big drum set. In the second line, there was an 11 over two, and then there were these other crazy polyrhythmic things. I lied. I said it would take a couple of days. <laughs> and he said, okay, can you, can you stay for a little while? I said, yes. And by this time like seven or eight other drummers had shown up. And so, okay, the next guy sits at the drums. Frank says, play a reggae groove. At the end of that, he says, it sounds really good. I don't think it's going to work out. And the next guy comes up and he play, plays a reggae groove and one or two other things. Sounds really good. I don't think it's going to work out. So by this point, one of the roadies comes over and says, man, I think you got the gig. So... Frank goes through all of those drummers in the exact same order. They play the same things in the same order. And none of them got to the first reading example, which. So then he comes over to me and he said, OK. The gig pays five hundred dollars a week when we rehearse and I'll get you an apartment here in L.A. It's a thousand a week when we're on the road. This is 1980. And when we record uh, it'll be a thousand a week in double scale. When can you start? <laughs> this was on a Monday. I, I had a recording session with Kenny Werner and Joe Lovano on Wednesday of that week. I said, I can start on Thursday. He said, in that case, I want to hear some other people. Can you hang around a little longer? I said, yes. So he heard some more drummers that afternoon. And in the meantime, the roadies told me what happened, which was when Frank books a tour, he hires the musicians for two months before the tour, and they rehearse eight hours a day, five days a week. And in week five, on the Wednesday of week five of those rehearsals, Vinny Caliuta quit because he got hired by Gino Vanelli for twice the money Frank was paying. And he had done a record, I think it's called Night Stalker with Gino Vanelli. Yeah. So yeah. Vinny quit. Then over the weekend, he had the keys to Joe's garage. He came in and grabbed the hi-hat symbols in the seat. 
<laughs> so Frank hears some more drummers. He said, he doesn't hear anyone that he wants to hire. He said, can you stay tomorrow? So I said, yes. So that night he invited me to his house for dinner. And he was living in Laurel Canyon, I think a house that Lady Gaga bought recently. Wow. And he had a, a recording studio in the house that he was, um, he was trying to upgrade. And he had one of those big, uh, like backhoe machines in the yard. And he was digging holes in the yard. And he had these, these cement vessels like you would have in a sewer um, and, and big metal barrels that he was putting in these holes and he was running cable out to put different microphones in each of these chambers to find the perfect kind of echo and reverb. So this was like serious dedication. Yeah. Um, oh, man. So the next day he invites three other drummers and I to play kind of a round robin thing. And he hires one of those drummers. And what I heard later was that after two or three days, it didn't work out. Then he hired another one of those drummers who was named David Lagerman, who's on half of one record. Um, so the band, I didn't get, I mean, I, I think I was offered the gig, but I wasn't, I, if, if he had said, well, I need you to start today, I would have said, okay. Yeah, I live in New York. I'm married. I have a recording session on Wednesday. I can start on Thursday. I, I don't understand what your, how much stress you're under. So I'm giving you the answer that works for me. Anyway, yeah. that's that's yeah. what happened. Um, wow. Then they go on the road and they come to New York and they play at a place called the China Club, and oh, Frank sure. Frank calls me up and invites me to the gig, and David Lagerman is playing and sounded really good. And but I guess about halfway through that tour, Vinny quit the Gino Vanelli thing, or that was over, and he came back with Frank. And so I I have to assume that you know when Vinny wanted to come back, that I would be sent home as well. <laughs> but but regardless of uh, of that, just having that experience and having him kind of say you know, accepting maybe I'm on the right track, man, that gave me so much positive energy for, for a long time. So bet. even though I didn't do the gig, I'm, I'm very grateful for that experience. That's, that's an incredible story, John. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't know I would have asked you that 30 years ago if I, <laughs> would if be I 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but what a great story. And i and I think to, 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 um, you know, basically, you know, and, and what you just said to, to add to that, that the fact that he didn't hesitate to send those other guys home, you know, sounded really great, but it's not going to work. The fact that he wanted you to stick around and started talking about what it paid. I, I think you had the gig. I think, like you said, if, if you didn't have the session on that Wednesday and, and you said, okay, I'm in, you know, you, yeah. Yeah, but that it's okay. It's worked out okay. It worked out okay. I'd say it did, and and it's a great, it's a great you know uh, story to have, and a, and a you know what a great memory 
you know, to have, to have played with Frank. Yeah. Wow. I was, uh, as I said, I got a lot of positive energy out of it. Yeah. A couple little other little things I'm rem- remembering now. At one point, there was a closet in Joe's garage, and he brings me over to this closet, and he opens the door, and it's filled from the floor to the ceiling with, uh, with stuff that looks like this, like music paper. And he said, yeah, I, uh, I have this rock band so that I can afford to do what I really want to do, which is write this classical music. And that was, and he had done, he had written a lot of classical music. I've, I've heard that. Yeah. That an amazing composer. Yeah. Did you get to hear any of it? Did. Well, that, that piece Mo and Herb's vacation eventually was recorded with the London symphony orchestra. I think with Chad Wackerman playing it. Um, but the classical guys don't really play with the same kind of precision rhythmically that, that this thing required. So mm. I think it probably sounded much better with the rock band, but I never <laughs> yeah. heard that version. Wow. Wow. That's what a uh, great story. Is that he has this sort of reputation as being really spacey, but he was all business and completely straight ahead. And it was a requirement that you signed a contract saying no drugs or alcohol, uh, wow. even though on the stage they act totally zany. Uh, yeah. So he he was uh, he was a serious guy. Yeah, you, I, I've I've only heard you know through drummer friends of ours you know positive things like you say in terms of his professionalism and I remember uh, Terry Bozio telling me that when Terry left Frank to form Missing Persons uh, in the late seventies early eighties that Frank let him come in and record at his new studio which I I presume would be Joe's Garage or. Or maybe that was in his, I think it was, a, it was the studio had just been built. And he said to Terry, you know, you'll be doing me a favor because I can, you know, work out all the sort of acoustic bugs, so to speak. You'll get to record for free and, you know, win-win and really help, you know, help the band out a lot to do that. So That might have been yeah. in the house. Joe might have been at the house, didn't yeah. look like a studio to me. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, a, cu- a couple more questions, John. I'm going to just throw at you real quick here. Um, this is from Sebastian Poshko. I hope I pronounced that right, Sebastian. Sebastian from Germany here. I have problems soloing over swing tunes. How can I practice getting better at this? And I, I, you probably touched a little bit on that uh, with Charles Prim's question. But um, uh, yeah, soloing over swing tunes. I think you need some vocabulary. You need some, let's call it licks, some melodic phrases that uh, that you like and that you can hear and execute without having to think about them, without having to think about, okay, I'm going to play my double paradiddle lick now. No, it just needs to be a drumming word that you hear Maybe it, the sticking maybe is double paradiddles, but you're not thinking about that. You're thinking about the melody that it creates. So I would, I would say you can get some really good, clear jazz vocabulary by, by copying some, some Max Roach. Um, 
And maybe a solo to start with would be this solo on a song called Delilah, which he recorded with Clifford Brown. He happens to play it with mallets, but it's uh, the motives are super clear. And you can hear the logic in why he moves from one phrase to another. Um, and this particular solo doesn't have any bass drum stuff in it. So it's just hands, moving the hands around the drums. Um, steal some of those ideas. That's what we mm -hmm. do. We steal ideas from each other. And um, then personalize them. You will distort them a little bit over time, and that will be, become, you know, the, the foundation for your, your style. That's great. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I hear so many drummers, uh, you know, pro drummers at your level say that, that I got this idea from I heard something Tony play or that Elvin played or uh, Steve Gadd or someone like that, that, yeah, and, and make it your own. Yeah. Yeah. What's the, Great. I think Clark Terry used to say, there's three steps. First, you imitate, then you assimilate, then you innovate. Yeah. First, you have to imitate. Yeah. That's like great. Carmine is, is, is imitating Gene Krupa. Yeah. Or maybe Gene Krupa was imitating Carmine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Adam says, "Clear as a bell." All right, yeah. Um, this mess, this uh, question comes from uh, Rich Farago, my my pal. Uh, you have an amazing way of breaking down complex rhythms. What's your advice when trying to break down grooves that are displaced and make the one really hard to hear? That's a good question. Hmm. Well, listen to it slower. See if you can slow it down. And the first thing you want to hear is, where does this thing repeat? Where does that loop repeat? And then try and find a logical place for the one to be. And sometimes it's not the drummer that spells out where the one is, but it could be where the harmony is in the song. And... I can think of a bunch of Tower of Power songs, like um, the one that goes, on the serious side. Mm -hmm. Check out the David Garibaldi playing on, on the serious side with Tower of Power. Um, the way the melody and the drums fall, it can be tricky with finding where the one is. But um, repeated listening, maybe slow it down, and then try and play along with it and see if you can find a logical, sort of simplified groove that fits. So this thing starts with a one-y beat, mm -hmm. and we want to hear that that second note as beat one, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the more 
after you after you get comfortable with a couple of these things that are that are throwing you off the the next ones will become easier and easier mm-hmm. because there's only so many places so many ways to flip it yeah yeah and and i'm i'm guessing to your you know you can develop your ear the more you do this too you'll be able to find one more easily in those hard to find places yeah your ear will be a little more accustomed to yeah now there is a guy on youtube a great drummer that that analyzes um tunes with weird rhythmic elements and what's his name gabe uh it's an israeli guy oh okay um let me find it so i tell you the right thing okay and i'm going to give you i have one more question for you Mm -hmm. before we wrap up after you uh after you find who you're looking for yeah i'm listening oh okay so here's the question um and i hope i pronounce paul's last name correctly paul kobelars uh said he saw you last night with the harrisburg jazz collective big band that's true yeah great performance i have two questions what type of symbol do you use on your left side very unique sound mm. and how do you muffle your bass drum uh the symbol that i used on my left side was an 18 inch pre-aged k Oh, yeah. It's uh, got to be about 20 years old, something like that. Probably even um, older, John, I'll bet. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's in the car. I could get it now because I have a gig tomorrow night also. Um, yeah, that's the symbol. And I've used that a lot. Um, yeah. yeah. People seem to like it. And uh, it feels good to ride on. And also, it's not so hard to crash. And what I mean by that is some symbols have a stiffness to them where to get their good crash sound, you have to play it like louder than I want to play most of the time to get mm-hmm. the metal, the flex and the sound to open up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this one um, has a nice combination of being a good ride symbol, but also easily crashed. Um, what was the other part of the question? The, the other question was, uh, how do you muffle your bass drum? Well, that bass drum was a 20 Yamaha. And I'm using those uh, fiber skin FD3 heads on the drum, mm-hmm. which are a little thicker. And I think they might have a ring built in to them. Yeah. And I think there's no muffling on the drum. Okay, I, was I have it tuned pretty right much almost as low as it goes to play in a big band. Um, yeah, and you have one of those in the front head as well. The front head is the five. Yeah, they're scale. both the same. Both the same. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and and nothing inside, wide open. Otherwise, I'll bet it sounds beautiful. Uh, I like it. Yeah. Oh, okay. here's the guy. Okay. Okay. Mom never came home from her trip. There's got to be a way Come to on. Find You're going to answer her email? Hold on, please. Commercial on YouTube? Yeah, I haven't. <laughs> I, I haven't started paying for YouTube yet. No, I refuse to. 
technology can help you remember ads. Stop. Okay. <laughs> the guy's name is Yogev Gabe. Y O G E V G A B A Y. And he's really, um, really good at analyzing strange rhythmic stuff and notating it and breaking it down. Uh, he's a really good drummer, but mm. he's got uh, a YouTube channel where he does this kind of stuff. And uh, I would definitely check that out. Okay, great. And so folks, while you're on YouTube, subscribing to my channel live from my drum room, check out his channel as well. I'm not trying to create competition, <laughs> but it's a totally different thing. Yeah. Thank yeah. Okay. It. No, thank you for that. Yeah. And, and there's, I'm going to just ask you one more question from my friend, Dan Peterson. Um, any story behind the recording with Miles Davis and Quincy Jones at Montreux? Um, I can share any, any, yes. Yeah, uh, so Montreux is in Switzerland and the producer of this, of the festival uh, was named Claude Nobbs, and oh, yeah. and um, he had had Quincy Jones as the musical director for the festival for years, and every year Quincy wanted Miles Davis to do kind of a retrospective on his career, so to to do performances of the the music he recorded in the forties and fifties, some of it with a large ensemble, like Sketches of Spain and Porgy and Bess, those records. And Miles always refused. But this one year, Miles finally said, okay, I'll do it. So Claude had to hire musicians to, to do this thing with Miles. So he hired a Swiss piano player that Adam and I have worked a lot with named George Gruntz. And George, I was playing in George's band at the time. So George was hired to provide the band for Miles for this uh, event. Then it got a little complicated because George didn't have the music and Miles didn't have the parts, the, the parts. But Gil Evans' widow, Gil Evans wrote that music. Gil Evans' widow had the music and she wasn't going to give it to Claude Nobbs or to George Gruntz unless they hired the remnants of the Gil Evans big band to play the music for the show. So I had been hired, but then we get to S Switzerland and we discovered that Quincy decided the only way to make this, this uh, performance better than the original is to have two musicians on every part instead of one. Huh. It was kind of a silly idea. But it ended up that Kenwood Denard, who was the drummer in Gil Evans' band, and, and I were the two drummers on the thing. Mm. But then we arrive there, and Grady Tate is also there. Oh. And so what, was, what Kenwood and I thought was that I was going to play drums and Kenwood was going to play percussion. And on the original recordings, Elvin Jones plays percussion along with a famous classical percussionist named Buster Bailey. And so Kenwood was going to cover those parts and I was going to play drums, but now Grady's there. And <laughs> it, the, what happened was that Quincy didn't know either of us and he knew Grady. Grady's on so many of his records. 
Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I could, there's more to it, but Grady played uh, on the recording. Kenwood and I are playing percussion, but Grady's playing my drums and my cymbals because I was supposed to do the thing. <laughs> um, it was funny oh. because Grady told me, I had worked with him a bunch. He was a singer also. And we get there and he said, man, I don't want to play with Miles. I'm nervous about playing with Miles. I've never worked with him. You were hired. You should be playing drums. And I said, well, Quincy hired you. You're playing drums. And so it was kind of interesting to see this this guy that I always looked up to from all the records he made with Korea and with Quincy and... um, to see him a little nervous, yeah. but in the end he sounded great. And Kenwood and I had a good time playing percussion. And it was another one of those situations where um, it was kind of unusual, but I was really honored to be there and to to be around Miles a little bit. And uh, anyway, that's wow. And then the 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 funny thing was that he passed away about three months later. So I think that Miles passed away about three months later. I think that he knew his health wasn't so good. And maybe that's why he finally agreed to do this thing that Quincy had been bugging him to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll bet you're right. Wow. And what a, you know, a, a, a moment for you to be part of that, you know. It was, yeah. a, it was a magical night, actually. Yeah, I'll bet. We had a couple of days of rehearsal and... Uh, with Kenny Garrett and Wallace Roney, and uh, it was it was really fun. Wow, fantastic! Well, John, thank you so much. I I, I appreciate you giving so much time today to do this, and uh, likewise. <laughs> well, and, and a pleasure having you, and I'm and I'm glad it's not bumping into a lesson. Um, <laughs> but I mean, he's parking his I, car now. No, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I would. I actually, I got to run myself in a little while. Um, my band is rehearsing tonight, and I've got to drive about forty miles up through Boston in the afternoon, which is never fun. But um, otherwise, I, 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 we could talk all day. I'm sure, and uh, it's it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks. It's uh, Thank you. it's great to see you again, and and uh, it has been too long. And pr- thanks for for the great discussion and for mentioning the book and for all that stuff. Absolutely, you're so welcome. And and I will mention again. I I apologize. Rob Wallace sent me a copy of the book over the summer, and there it is. Thank you. All right, the master drummer available on Hudson Music, John Riley's book. Um, I left it. He sent it either here to where I live or we have a place in the vineyard in the summertime. In any case, I, I think I brought it there and left it there because I at one point was talking about doing this over the summer. And um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Long story short is I don't have the book physically, but you do. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, everybody, I want to thank you all for watching today. A big hand for John Riley. Thank you. A true master, a true master and a true gentleman. Uh, a pleasure to, to be your friend all these years, John. Thank you. Thank you, John. Good to hear from everybody. Yeah. Swinging. Th- yeah. Thanks for all the great questions, everybody.